Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, I learned that good things can happen both after 2 o'clock in the morning and, surprisingly, at CBGB's. This week, I'll juggle relationships, work, and art life, rescue an endangered creature, and, accidentally or not, come to a sudden and quite unexpected fork in my road. We have a lot of story to get to this week, kids, so we're going to get right to it with this song that may be about the artist's freelance life or something else entirely. From one of the bands a certain generation loved to mope to, The Smiths, from 1984. And heaven knows I'm miserable now. I was looking for a job and then I found a job. And heaven knows I'm miserable now. In my life, oh why do I give valuable time to people who don't care was looking for a job and then I found the job and heaven knows whoops <laughs> oh well we're back with fish out of agua I could preface our first story today with some marginally witty banter about the 1990s in New York City but I think the title of this story along with the song you just heard says everything you need to know and now chapter 41 of fish out of agua Latinos in the Workplace. Actually, it's chapter 42, Latinos in the Workplace. When I finally got the courage to tell my family I had been accepted first to New York City Community College 
and then to the School of Visual Arts, it was just two more drops in my bottomless lifetime bucket of family failure. Artiste, I know. How can you do this to us? We did not raise you to be una bohemian. What are we going to tell Pasta Severo? Why can't you be a teacher like your cousin Evie wants to be? That's a nice job. Why can't you get a nice job? This is what I heard through all five years of art school. And I felt so guilty for being such a decepcionado, or as Titio Ophelia put it, doble decepcionado, that instead of moving into an East Village squat, the C-squat, right after my School of Visual Arts graduation with most of my class, I decided to make my family happy. I got a job, a nice job, as an assistant art director at a big, famous advertising agency. Only that job didn't work out. And then I got another job at a smaller advertising agency, this time as a junior copywriter. And that job didn't work out either. Nor did any of the other jobs I got in quick succession as a paste-up artist, an illustrator, or an assistant fashion stylist. I eventually, eventually found work as a freelance copy editor proofreader at a fashion catalog advertising agency. A couple of steps down, some people would have thought from what I had originally intended to do, but to me, this was perfect. Since I was technically not in creative now, but in production, I had none of the creative responsibility, which meant no real pressure or extra long hours. I wouldn't have a good salary or benefits either. But because this job was finite, stack of work to edit and stack of work done, I would have time to pursue my artistic dreams. And at last, here was something that could make everyone proud of me. I mean, I had a job, I was fully grown up now, and I could leave all the drama and mistakes of my youth behind. From now on, everyone I came in contact with would be mature, rational, and sophisticated. Monday morning, 12 o'clock noon, I opened my boss's door. Idiot! He yelled at me. No, stupid idiot! I said I wanted to die at RC Cola! So... My glamorous new fashion job wasn't exactly what I had imagined. My boss greeted me thusly when I couldn't find him a diet RC Cola at the corner deli when RC Cola hardly existed anymore. Or he did this to me when I couldn't tell him what was on MTV's House of Style the night before because I didn't have cable. Or when it was raining and his hair frizzed up and his editorial didn't get picked up again. I heard this all day. Every day. Idiot! Stupid idiot! It was kind of like being with certain family members. Except, now I was getting paid. Being paid to be insulted. Three months into this job, my boss called me into his office and said, Is it true you're Spanish? Someone had heard me speaking, as he said, Hispanic, in the elevator, and recommended that I work on the agency's new account a huge hair care company famous for its exotic shampoos and conditioners. They wanted me to translate their, Euros, their United States advertising into Spanish for the Caribbean market. And I said, um, I, I can't do that. 
I'm, I'm not fluent, boss. I, I only speak kitchen Spanish. You know, sus chuletas siempre son sabroso, abuelita. You need someone who speaks Spanish all the time. You need someone who is really bilingual. You need someone who works as a professional. What you need, missy, my boss interrupted, is your job. So, I barricaded myself into my cubicle with an English-Spanish dictionary and translated the ads as best as I could. I always knew you'd be good for something someday, my boss said. And my family's response? You, <laughs> you're translating Spanish? <laughs> Oye, they better get themselves un lawyer, un abogado away really quick. I was furious. I was so tired of feeling like the pariah, the pariah, the outsider, the decepcionado. So what if I listened to Blur and Sublime instead of Mark Anthony and Menudo? So what if I couldn't dance salsa? So what if my Spanish sounded like I learned it in high school? Yeah, which I basically had in Spanish classes because nobody else would be helping me. And you know, listen to this. I washed my panties in the shower almost every night. I wore chancletas in the house sometimes. And I knew how to make killer coquito. Always. So I said to them, you know what? I can speak Spanish and I'm getting paid for it. The getting paid part shut them up for a little while. A month later, my boss called me into his office again. Idiot, he yelled. No, stupid idiot. You just cost this company a million dollar account. You put a bad word in the shampoo ads. Bad word, I said. What are you talking about? Bello, see? Bello, bello, bello. What the hell does that mean? And he threw a highlighted copy of the ad copy at me. But, but, pelo isn't a word, a bad word. It, it just means hair, I swear. Look, I'll prove it to you. So we walked downstairs from the creative department with its windowed offices, leather designer chairs, and fresh flower arrangements to the back offices, where all the other Latin employees of the company worked. Funny, I never really noticed that before. We went to see Hector, a Chicano who worked in the bullpen, Edwige, the Argentinian-American production manager, Yvette, a Dominicana from Human Resources, and Marcy, the receptionist, a Brooklyn Boricua, and all of them said, Belo just meant hair. See, I said to my boss, feeling vindicated. And then I saw Soledad, the intern from accounting, and originally Calle Ocho, Little Havana, Miami. Flushed with victory, I did my best stray cat strut over to where Soli was and called out, Soli, mira, chica, ven aquí. Is there anything wrong with the word pelo? She grabbed me, spun me around, and whispered, Shh, don't say that in front of a man. It's bad. I knew it, my boss yelled. I always knew you were good for nothing. And he told everyone at the company that the ad I had translated for the Caribbean campaign said, Try our exotic conditioner for lustrous, manageable, brilliant, pubic hair. It didn't matter that Soledad was only 17 and a member of a Pentecostal sect so extreme the women weren't allowed, were not allowed, to wear lipstick, shave their legs, or even to tweeze their abundant chin hairs. And it didn't matter that pelo just meant pelo, hair. I was fired. Or being that I was a freelancer, I was <clears throat> unbooked indefinitely. The next day, I had to come back to the office and finish picking up some of my stuff. And strangely, though, 
all the offices, cubicles, and the bullpens were empty, and I could hear a commotion in the conference room. For some reason, I decided to check it out, and I walked in to find the entire company crowded around the television used for presentations, awaiting the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial. On one side of the room, Caucasians. On the other, African Americans and Latinos. Me? I saw I was standing smack in the middle, right beside the company's lone Asian employee. The verdict was given, and the reactions were as, were as expected. Brown and beige hooted and hollered. Pink and peach stood bewildered. I saw my ex-boss looking at me, which made me uncomfortable because I realized I didn't work there anymore. So I headed back to my former cubicle. As I packed my backpack, rumors of riots and worse had already begun. They were in Grand Central Station. They were running through Penn Station. They had cordoned off Port Authority bus terminal. The decision was made to close the office early. Many of the young, blonde, female account managers who had to go through Grand Central, Penn Station, or Port Authority bus terminal to get home were terrified that they would get them. And whom do you think escorted these women to their destinations, ensuring their safe exodus from Manhattan? You got it. They did. As for me, I was supposed to meet Adam at the Art Students League, so I said my goodbyes and started to leave. A couple of people asked me if I was going to be okay. I took it to mean okay out there, not okay without a job. I wasn't afraid of walking alone, so I said, yes, take care, see you around. My ex-boss was in the elevator with me on my way out. There was nothing else I could say, so I just stared straight ahead. It was an interesting walk up Madison Avenue. Stores were closing early, and on every block you could hear the clanging of gates being pulled down. The streets were crowded, and you could feel a collective, palpable sense of anxiety. People who usually took the subway at Grand Central were so nervous about what could be happening, they now lined up five and six deep waiting for the express buses, and the sidewalks became so packed, I had to walk in the street. A taxi backfired, and people were startled so badly they bumped into each other and tempers flared. It was a bad situation. All it would take would be one idiot, and there could be a stampede. Like the Who in Cincinnati. I cut across to Ninth Avenue, where there were empty sidewalks and some peace. When I finally reached 57th Street, where Adam was waiting for me, he asked, What kept you? Fucking OJ, I answered. Assholes, he said. That was such a cool thing about Adam. We were always on the same same wavelength. We went for a walk in Central Park, and it was a beautiful day. The next morning at 10.30, the phone rang. It was my ex-boss, wondering why I wasn't at work. Uh, because you fired me, I said. You can't be fired. You're freelance. Are you coming in, or do I have to book someone else? So I went into work. And when I got home, I found a box on my doorstep. It was from the hair care company. Inside was a letter belatedly, belatedly thanking me for my invaluable contribution to its Caribbean campaign and six bottles of its exotic shampoo and conditioner. I never found out what caused my boss to change his mind, and 
I would work at that company for another seven years, way outliving his tenure. Maybe it was because we didn't really lose the account. I only know that for the next year, I had the most lustrous, manageable, and brilliant pelo in all of Brooklyn. All over. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Fuck the Police from NWA's 1992 Straight Outta Compton and Run DMC's Rockbox from 1984 playing underneath the story. And now it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're going back to the art store days of the early aughts. <laughs> I just love saying the aughts. The early aughts at the Bowery Poetry Club with this week's guest, a musician, performance artist, doer, maker, wildlife advocate, and, well, why don't I just let her tell you. Hey kids, and now it's time for Fish Out of Agra's Guest Artist of the Week. We're going back to the art stars for this one. Oh my God, I can remember one of the first times I saw this woman with her um, eight-year-old daughter and her husband, playing um, crazy, wild-ass, wacky, do um, wonderful music and showing, like, these slideshows of found photography. And um, this is going back to, like, the open mics of Collective Unconscious and Surf Reality and Bowery Poetry Club. So right here, sitting next to me today, is an artist, activist, maker, and mom. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua, Tina Pina, Tina Trachtenberg. Hello, hello, everyone. Good to be here. So um, let's talk a little bit about like uh, life before 2000. Like I know that you're from Texas originally and, and, and you're Chicana in heritage, correct? Yep, Mexican. So tell us about your journey. How did you come to New York and what made you decide to be an artist and stuff? Well, I came to New York um, to visit a friend and I fell in love with it right away. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm done what, with what year was this? 88. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, I, I'm done with, uh, with this uh mall town that I grew up in and uh and I packed my bags and worked for six months more and got enough money to move to Hell's Kitchen and uh wow when it was still hell in it yeah actually <laughs> actually uh, and then I was just stayed with a friend there and then I moved to Chelsea and I was actually paying like three hundred dollars for my room in Chelsea and no one would visit me because Chelsea was so terrifying then. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I moved to Brooklyn from my parents' house in the Bronx in 1988. And my parents wouldn't come visit me for a full year. Mm-hmm. Because no one would come to Brooklyn. Nope. Nobody would oh, go to no, Brooklyn. Would, yeah. And now everybody wants to be in friggin' Brooklyn. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah t- definitely. Did, did you go to art school up here? Did you just work and do art right away? What like? Wh- oh, yeah. I, I don't believe in art school. Um, to me, that's an oxymoron. But... Uh, I just, craft school would be cool, but teaching anyone art, it's hmm. just like weird to me. Um, I learned uh, how to craft from my parents, and uh, they were both um, amazing artists, and um, so I learned how to sew and cook and and do uh, really, um, you know, make, make my, my little world as magical as possible. Your world is magic. One of the projects that I'm so enamored with that you're doing now is that um, you're taking the creatures of New York that everybody loves to hate and you're just giving them beauty in life. And by that, I mean pigeons and squirrels and pizza rats and uh, water bugs. Yeah. And, and you're selling them in Union Square and other places. 
That's right. Um, I like to set them up. I make, I make them out of felt and wire, and I set them up uh, in different areas of the city, and, uh, and uh, people, people flock to it, I should say. <laughs> and and you, you have a new nickname of Mother Pigeon, right? Mother Pigeon is my name, yep. And, and you've um, been featured in, um, in like, different like, periodicals and stuff. Like, yeah. I, I think I saw you like, in the Daily News or something. I was just in the New York Post. Oh, New York Post. Um, okay. And then, uh, of course, I've been in the New Yorker, the New York Times, um, all of the blogs and everything. Um, I need a bit. I need a bigger piece in the New Yorker. Aha! Uh-huh. Well, let's hope someone listens to this and gives her one. That's right. Um, so, like, people respond to them so greatly. I mean, I saw this picture of like the live pigeons on you with the felt pigeons, and it's amazing. Yeah, um, you know, we have these beautiful birds. They're um, slightly big and and and. Um, and vibrant, and they and they walk around, and they and they're there all the time, and people don't notice them, and I, I just um, I adore them, you know, I, I adore I adore looking at them, and and I have such a fun time um, thinking about them, and uh, here they are trying to survive in this really difficult environment. Yeah, like all of us. Like we're like all trying all to survive us. in the yes. difficult environment and yeah. we're doing the best we can with mm-hmm. what we can, yep. the way we can. Mm-hmm. But you see the beauty in it, which I love. And I, I, I feel this closure. I'm a proud owner of one of these mother pigeons. You have a piece. That's yes, right. That's you, right. You are an owner. Um, it, it, have... it sits in my recording studio. Well, my, 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 my microphone and like computer <laughs> in my bedroom at home. Yeah. I have. Uh, she watches over me. Yeah, it, it is so interesting. You know, uh, the the people that buy. I I don't have a type. Um, sometimes I think, oh, my type is, uh, you know, my my clientele or whatever you want to say is like. Middle-aged, uh, wealthy-ish women uh, who love birds, uh, and then and then and then and then and then, and then, and then it's like um, super well-dressed gay guys love them, and uh, and then it'll be like someone from the hood will just be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I love them, and um, so it's just it just covers so much ground, you know, who's going to be attracted to a, a pigeon. Right. Well, because it, it it resonates with people. It, yeah. It, it just that's that's it. It that's and that's what art art, good art or any art or whatever art resonates. It mm-hmm. resonates. Yeah. It makes it it makes you see something in an unexpected way. Yeah. That you weren't seeing. Before. That you weren't seeing before. Yeah. I and um and you know I mean it's interesting for me because going out with the pigeons uh in the day and like putting them out it, it is the most beautiful thing to see people smile and laugh, uh, get angry. Mm. Um, some people get really angry, uh, when they, um, when they see what I do. Um, well, are, are they angry that the, that they're not live pigeons? Do they think that you're like the Pied Piper of no, actual pigeons? No, they get angry. They're like, oh, pigeons are disgusting. Why oh. would you make that? You know what? If, if, if we lived in like this bucolic beautiful like past pasture environment pigeons would just be exalted mm-hmm. they'd just be like and they're only cruddy because they live in crud mm-hmm. just like with people if you have people living in crud then people get cruddy that's if you right have people living in good and decent and fair conditions you know the pigeons in prospect park don't look cruddy well you know what you're, they live ver- in the park. you're very aware and uh, uh and you're you're noticing because the thing i noticed too is like um Pigeons in different areas. I'm trying to find my um, adoration of the pigeon that I give give out to people. But you know, pigeons um, 
we have we like you said we have we have made them live in our filth yeah rats too yeah what do you expect? Yeah, well, we're going to be I, dirty. We don't have it. Well, there's no bird bath or anything for them. Yeah, I, I mean, I would make the case for rats like they're kind of like they're a little dirty. They kind of like they have, they get fleas, and, but then again, a dog gets fleas mm-hmm. if, if it lives in crud. Mm-hmm. We do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's right. People used to have lice all the time. Yeah. Oh my god, ill. Oh my god. I remember when I was in grade school, the, the whole entire fourth grade, my brother's entire fourth grade class had to get their head shaved. Yeah. Because of like these two I remember kids, those days. and the, and these kids were like the scuzz kids. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah, like, everyone knew. Everybody there was always one family yep. that was the scuzzy family. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was like nine kids, and, and I made friends. I always made friends and, with those kids. Uh-huh. I'm like, in that way. So you are married to a musician, Jason mm-hmm. Trachtenberg, mm-hmm. Um, and you have a child, Rachel, who is mm-hmm. also a musician and, mm-hmm. and an artist. Mm-hmm. And um, tell us a little bit about the the slideshow players, like your the stuff that you were doing. Um, Back in the day. Oh, well, you know. It was so much fun to see those shows. Yeah, yeah. We collected slides and, and made songs to match up with the, with the slides. Um, yeah, well, it was a good time. I don't so like a long time ago. <laughs> I know. It's like when people ask me about the Karma Mafungo days. But it's funny because people remember you for a certain thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's, as an artist, when you want to like segue. Switch up into something yeah, else. Into yeah, into something different. No, I know. Because I was Karma Maf- You know me when I was Karma Mafungo. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing storytelling with the moth. And then I wrote a book. And yeah. I, I was a burlesque MC, And mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm doing solo performance in this. And every time it's like, well, is it a reinvention or is it just a segue? Or is it just a natural progression of things? Mm-hmm. As you, I don't know, grow as an artist, as you get a little older, as you... Well, I think... You just want to do different things. You want to do different things. We're not... We're artists. We're not machines. Right. Exactly. So we're not going to do the same thing over and over and over again. We'll go crazy. Um, Like the Ramones playing, like, playing the same songs, wearing the same clothes that they wore when they were, like, 20, when they were, like, 38. And, like, they they were hating it. Yeah. I'm reading about that in in Please Kill Me Now. Mm -hmm. And they're, like... We're dressing the same way as we did when we were like teenagers and didn't give a shit about ourselves, and we and like they would count the seconds to, till they played Pinhead because mm. they knew that the, that the show would be almost over, mm. and that's like the saddest shit. That's right. You know, that's exactly what happened. I mean, with the Trachtenbergs, it was like Jason couldn't do the songs over and over again. It was like done. We were done. Right. And, I knew you. And now, this uh, you know, Mother Pigeon is just evolving, and it's just a really good time. And I'm not raising Rachel, so she's. You know, grown woman, twenty three years old, beautiful. Congratulations! Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And uh, amazing person. And uh, so now I get to just do me. Yeah, it's great. It's like like, so instead of having an empty nest, you just filled your nest with something different. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No, totally. Completely. You you took out a little piece of paper. Yeah, but here's a a thing. You know, just a few facts about pigeons. Okay. Uh, You didn't know pigeons mate for life. Huh. Like mm-hmm. a lot of birds do. Mm-hmm. A lot of birds do. Uh, uh, both of the uh, mother and the father carry uh, uh, feed the baby, and they make milk. Oh, in their crop. Mm. That's pretty cool. Um, if they regurgitate like a pelican or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. They, that means they eat and barf, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what was another one? Um, uh, I think that's about, that was those are the, the main ones I wanted to say is that they make for life because I think that's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. I mean, people don't do it. Exactly. <laughs> and birds I, do it. Exactly. The thing that makes me really sad when I see pigeons is sometimes you see like their feet are all messed up. Yeah. Like they lose their toes or mm-hmm. something or they get like these scabrous like growths mm-hmm. on, on their beaks. But, you know, I noticed that when in like more, I don't know, like 
dirtier, cruddier neighborhoods, like around, like I guess, like a bridge or a tunnel sure. or like Times Square or something. Mm -hmm. Like I said, pigeons in Prospect Park and Greenwood Cemetery. They have places they to are looking, boy, and they, people come to feed them. They look, they look sleek. Mm -hmm. They're shiny. They mm -hmm. look iridescent. Mm -hmm. Some of them like a little borderline plump. Exactly. Plump in the rump pigeon. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So this is another thing I wanted to mention. Um, there are pigeon nettings that occur all over the city where the, a guy pulls up with a van, he throws a net down, puts seed down, and the pigeons flock to eat the seeds, and the guy swoops them up and takes them, puts them in a van on a hook, and then takes them to a place where they are put for like a few days, not, no food, no water, and then they are taken to Pennsylvania where they are, their wings are clipped. Oh, God. And they're put into a toucan shoot, shoot, uh, uh, thing and uh, people shoot them. Yeah, and they can't get away because they're weak. Mm -hmm. Well, horrible. they don't have, they can't fly. They get their wings oh clipped. Oh my God. So this happens we, we all the time. We gotta catch this guy. Yeah, we gotta catch these people and uh, we told the police they don't care. You know, they've got other things. No, do. they don't care because they're pigeons. And you know, you could translate that to people. Like you could say, you could pick a certain mm -hmm. uh, segment of the population. Yep. Gee, do I want to say Muslim? Oh no, I didn't say mm -hmm. that. That you could just like dehumanize mm -hmm. or or de de birdieize. Yep. I can't think of the word. Yeah, yep. we don't care. Slide for yep. you. Yep. 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 We, we, we make shit up all the time. But yeah, you can you can just dehumanize for want of a better word any segment mm -hmm. of the population at all. Mm -hmm. And that's what people do with pigeons. That's right. Like, like here, in this nothing. country, they're an uh, it. In this country, dogs and cats are pets. If mm -hmm. we lived in certain parts of Asia, dogs and cats would be on the menu mm -hmm. so right. you know it's all perception mm -hmm. i know you did want to have a little music yeah I, I so have, i have a piece that i'd like to share with you okay uh, let's 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 okay. get, let's get to it all right ready yeah okay let me um, tina tina piña tina piña 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 tina pineapple <laughs> piña's pineapple right that is correct yeah. is that your actual last name mm-hmm pretty cool right yeah I very cool I, I, I want to just be tina piña now tina tracker i'm not a jew <laughs> and it's, time. it's okay, Jason. She yeah, still loves love you. you. But, you know, we don't have you don't have to own me. Oh my Boy god. Vey. Boy vey. Don't 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 get don't get the Latinas of a certain age together, people. <laughs> We're gonna be taking over all the shit. I'm for real. Man. Oh gosh. Okay, let's see. Now I now okay, sorry, this is gonna just keep talking. Oh there we go. Alright, here we go. Tina Pina with some musica. This is called Adoration of the Pigeon. Pigeon, is that you walking down the street or way up high on the telephone line? I want it to be you. Pigeon, is that you high up on the building top? Maybe not, but Pigeon, is that you? Pigeon, is that you flying high up in the sky or it might just be some other guy from down here seems to look like you. I so badly want it to be you. Pigeon, is that you with your iridescent crop, purple feathers on the bottom and some green up on top? Pigeon, is that you? Pigeon, is that you with many feathers on your neck? Are you a blue bar or a checker on your foot? There's only two toes left. Pigeon, that could be you. Pigeon, is that you? Because I have seeds to share to show you how much I care. Now, Pigeon, is that you? Pigeon, is that you? Please look at what I wear. I wear felt baby pigeons in my hair. I even made a hat with a black beak and handmade feathers to be like you, my pigeon friend. Until we meet again, pigeon, is that you? 
with the two toes? That's so sad. I swear. <laughs> it is my hope that anyone that hears this interview today, when you go out and you see what you used to call rats with wings, know that you're doing them a great disservice and they're a beautiful and noble bird. Feed them. They, they, they need food and they don't have a lot of food. And Give them water. Put a little dish of water out for them. I take water to the And parks. you're a beautiful and awesome human. Tina, I'm really glad that you came out to talk with us. Aw, thank you so much. Thanks on behalf of Fish Out of Agua. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> and we're back with Fish Out of Agua. I actually interviewed Tina Pina, Mother Pigeon, weeks ago, but I held on to it for just this episode because of this story coming next. And I hope you'll think it's a good fit, too. And now, Chapter 43 of Fish Out of Agua. The Falcon and the Hangman. Make me a coffee, my father said. No, not with that, he said, when I picked up my brand new Bodum French press coffee maker. Make it the real way, with a colador. I can't get your mother to make it that way, to, that way anymore. A year after I moved to Brooklyn, my father visited for the first time. He saw Prospect Park and the neighborhood and loved it. Not enough for him and my mother to move there, which I tried to convince them to do, but enough to come back once a month, usually with Kevin. My mother didn't come over much. I only saw her on my infrequent visits to the Bronx now that Abuelita had died. But I did call her every week. It was a warm magnolia trees in full bloom spring Saturday, and my father, Kevin, Adam, and I had gone to the PS321 flea market on 7th Avenue in Park Slope. My father loved that flea market. He could spend hours looking at all kinds of stuff. And then he'd flirt with an older female vendor named Helen. He'd call her toots, or sweetheart, and I'd cringe. She seemed to like it, though, and always smiled back. I'd never met anyone who didn't like my father. My father liked Adam. A lot. More than anyone else I had ever been with. He, my father had a test that he gave to the three boys I had dared to bring home. My father poured out two shots from an ancient bottle of fundador brandy he kept on a top shelf in the kitchen and watched for their reaction as they drank it. Now, my dad was not a big drinker, just a beer or two at a barbecue or a baseball game or some coquito on the holidays, but he and his brothers used to do these shots at ruby clubs when I was little. For all I knew, it was the same bottle from the 1970s, and my father could down that shot like it was water. <laughs> Brendan? He had almost thrown up, although he was Irish. Pasha, who was Russian, did a little better. Tears welled up in his eyes, though, and he coughed. Adam, on the other hand, threw back the shot and banged the glass on the kitchen counter, saying, Thank you, sir. May I please have another? My father loved it. You finally brought home a real man, he said, conveniently forgetting the fact that Adam was eight years my junior. <laughs> As I was making coffee, the real way, Adam told my father and Kevin about an adventure we had had a month before. While checking out Battery Park City's brand new scenic walkway on the other side of the World Financial Center, we strolled by an area still under construction. Adam stopped suddenly and asked, What's that? What's what? I said. Shh, he said, pointing. That. Look. And he bent down, taking me with him. On the other side of a fence, in what looked like a construction yard, 
was a cat stalking. But Adam was talking about a bird, a large chick standing in the grass. It was quiet. Defiant, really. You could swear its chin was pointed straight up, up and its mouth was pointing slightly down. That is, if it had a chin and a mouth. I know what it is, I whispered to Adam. It's a falcon. It's a peregrine, Adam said. And it looks like your brother. That was another very cool thing about Adam. Not only was he a nerd about certain things, such as knowing about bird species like me, but he was right. Kevin did have a bit of a protruding chin, and the bird's posture did resemble Kevin's usual picture-taking pose. I cracked up. When I finished laughing, I said, We have to do something. We have to try to save it. Maybe we can get a reward or something. Adam was out of work at the present, and my copy editing was our only income. Money was super tight. Yeah, Adam said. Maybe I could ask that guard if we can get in and save it. So we went to ask the guard. We told him it was an endangered species. How do you know it's a falcon? The guard asked me. Because I know, I said. Yeah, well, I think it's a pigeon, the guard said. Let the cat get it. Now get out of here before I call the cops. And the guard went back to his booth and his little television. That guard is a dick, I said. Yeah, fuck him, said Adam. I'm getting that bird. Give me your bandana. Cover me. Adam hopped the fence, shoot off the cat, which had come back for another try, and hopped back over with the bird as the guard came over brandishing his walkie-talkie. I seen yous, he said, and yous are trespassing. I called the cops. Good, Adam said. We'll wait for them with you. The guard made a face at us as if he had sucked an entire lemon, and when the cops came and we'd showed them the chick, the cops told the guard that we had saved an endangered species. And if the guard had let the cat get it, he could have been prosecuted and fined or gone to jail. And as the guard stood there with his mouth hanging open, the cops asked us to get into their car with them. And they took us to their station to find out what to do with our rescued endangered species. The officers were Port Authority police officers, and their station was in the World Trade Center. We talked to one of them while the other made some phone calls, and we found out that they had both been there when it was bombed in 1993, four years before. We know now what happened a little over four years after that day. I hope they lived. I wish I remembered their names. When the other officer came back, he was excited. It's a kestrel, he said and he had found a woman who had fostered abandoned or injured kestrels and falcons before, in, before reintroducing them into the wild. The officers let us ride there with them. The foster woman lived near Bellevue Hospital, and when she answered the, the door, we almost burst out laughing. She looked like a bird, and was about as friendly as one. But she took our phone number and let Adam and me know when she was about to release the chick. We went a month later, and saw the bird hesitate, then soar into the sky above the cloisters. It was amazing. The officers drove us back to Brooklyn after dropping the chick off at the bird lady's apartment. I said that the last time I had ridden in the back of a police car, I was 13 and had been picked up for writing graffiti. Adam said, me too, only I was 16, she beat me, and we all laughed. Those officers were so, so nice. When Adam finished telling the story, Kevin said, Wow, that was freaking cool. 
and he made the kestrel face. My father hadn't really been listening. He had been wandering around the apartment, poking in the fridge and opening all the cabinets in the kitchen. He went into the tiny bedroom and came out with our cat, Kimchi, who immediately jumped out of his arms. He went back into the kitchen and picked up Boris, who obligingly purred. He looked at all the plants on the window shelves, then walked through the middle room, or living room, to the front of the apartment, where we had converted the front room into an artist studio for Adam. And then my father looked at all the paintings on the walls and on the easel. When he came back into the kitchen with Boris, he put the cat down and said, This is not the life I would have chosen for you, little girl. That totally seemed to come out of nowhere, and all I could say was, What do you mean? And then my father said, This is not the life I saw for you. I always saw you with an older, professional man, with kids, and a house on Long Island, with a white fence and a lawn, and not, not like this artist stuff. And his voice trailed away. Adam got up and said he was going to the store, and he made Kevin go with him. When we were alone, I said to my father, Why did you say that? That hurts me. That's not the kind of life I want. If you wanted that kind of life, why didn't you give it to Mommy? My father's face dropped. He looked as if I had punched him in the stomach. He looked also as if he was going to cry, although he didn't. I, f I felt really bad, but what he said really hurt. I thought Adam and I had a good life. Maybe we didn't live in a fancy house, and maybe we didn't have a lot of money, but we were both doing what we wanted to do, and for the most part, we were happy. I thought I had to do something right away before this got worse, so I said, Daddy, Daddy, look at me. Do I look hurt? Do I look sick? Do I look sad? Is there food in the refrigerator? Is the house clean? Are the plants alive? Are the cats healthy? Yeah, my father said, but you and Adam are... the artists, I said. Yes, Daddy, we're artists. He was silent for about a minute. I was scared to hear what he was going to say next. I miss you, he said. With you gone, it's never even anymore. It's always your mother and Kevin against me. I can't be home anymore, Daddy. I have to live my life. I know. I know, little girl. But I can still miss you. Can't I? When Adam and my brother came back to the apartment, my father and I had made up and were sitting at the table having another coffee. Café con leche. What took you so long, I said. When Kevin and my father left, my father did something he never had before. He hugged Adam. You're a good painter, he said. When they left, Adam asked, what was that about? And I said, I'm not sure. Later on, I figured it out. My father never really did much of anything in his life besides work and go home. And that was his way of making it as stable as he could for Kevin and me. He didn't drink except for special occasions. He didn't gamble except for his daily number. He didn't fool around like Ethiophilia's husbands always seemed to have. 
He could have left us when my mother became ill or afterwards. I believe he stayed because he loved us. And I believe he at last accepted my life because he saw that Adam and I loved each other. A couple of weeks later, I was offered a really big face painting job. It was the only art I ever did anymore, painting tigers, dragons, peacocks, and butterflies on kids at the Bronx Zoo or wherever the face painting group was hired. We were in demand as our style was not just to make little pictures on your cheek. Each face was a true work of art. I was lucky to be working with this group of artists. But this big job would take place on Father's Day, and my family had made plans to go to Tito Puente's new restaurant out in City Island to celebrate. I struggled deciding whether to take the job for over a week. On one hand, the job would pay $500 for the day, and Adam and I needed the money. On the other, after the talk my father and I had, I didn't want to wait until his birthday in July to see him again. In the end, I blew off the face painting job and went to Tito Puente's. The face painting agent was pissed. Adam and I were still broke. The food at Tito Puente's? I... It's horrible. It was horrible. But I am forever grateful my father and I were together that day. You heard the Bronx's own August Darnell, otherwise known as King Creole, and the Coconuts with Stool Pigeon from the 1982 Tropical Gangsters album, and the Smashing Pumpkins Tonight Tonight from 1995's Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness during that story. There's a saying, often credited to mid-20th century cartoonist Alan Saunders, that goes, Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. This next story is about one of those times. Chapter 44 of Fish Out of Agua The Accident They say that when one door closes, another one opens. It just doesn't feel like that while the door is closing on your foot. I was lying on a gurney in the emergency room of Brooklyn Hospital. A livery cab making an illegal turn while running a red light had broadsided the livery cab Adam and I were riding in. It was 8 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, July 19, 1997. It was my father's birthday. We were on our way to his funeral. One minute I was going over the eulogy I had written. The next I was flying, first into the metal partition separating us from the driver and then up against the window. Adam, who had been sitting on the side that was hit, screamed, Are you okay? In our seven years together, I had never heard him scream like that before. I tried to say, I think so, but I couldn't form the words. A fountain of blood was spraying from my mouth. Instinctively, I leaned forward so it wouldn't get onto my funeral clothes. A lifetime of upbringing by women who can spot an unplucked eyebrow at 30 paces sometimes had its advantages. Two pairs of hands opened the car door, lifted me out, and carried me to lean against the parked car. Put me down, I tried to say. I can walk. But I just kept swallowing more blood. I couldn't seem to put my lips together at all. The women who had carried me out of the cab stood over me. Somehow I sensed from their complimentary looks of concern that they were a couple. I remember thinking, wow, I've been saved by lesbians. 
That is so Brooklyn. I looked past them and saw a driver crying and clutching his neck. Adam was getting his head wrapped by someone and a man shouting at two cops. I guessed that he was the one who had hit us. And this made me really angry because this was not just any old car crash. This was the morning of my father's funeral and now I was going to be late? I rose from the car bumper and lurched over to the man. When he saw me, he flinched. I tried to yell at him but still could not put my lips together and could only croak, Look at me! Look at me! You did this to me! My father is dead! And you did this to me on the way to his funeral! The man mumbled something and tried to back away. The cops he had been yelling at sprang forward and led me back to where the ambulance, an ambulance had now appeared. Where's Adam? I tried to say. Shh, answered one of the cops, with that false reassurance medics in war movies always use to soothe the about-to-die horribly. Shh, it's going to be all right. As I climbed into the back of the ambulance, I saw my reflection in a chrome paper towel dispenser. The left side of my face had been butterflied open, from halfway under my left nostril, straight through my upper lip. Two flaps of torn skin framed shredded gums, exposing the roots of my front teeth. I reached my hand to where my lip should have been, and my fingers went right inside my mouth. It was not going to be all right. It had taken almost twenty years, but I had come full circle. Once again, I was an actress. I'd had my first taste of the acting bug, doing Guys and Dolls at New York City Community College, dropping that when I decided to continue my original plan of transferring to the School of Visual Arts instead. But at the age of 34, the age where most people quit, I decided once again to try acting. And in just three years, I had gone from taking classes to answering ads in Backstage magazine to auditions with casting directors who were starting to remember me. Maybe I only had small roles in independent films and glorified extra parts in mainstream ones, including the last two minutes of Living in Oblivion, but I didn't care. I was proud that I was achieving more and more with each passing month. Just two days before, I had shot a Johnny Walker Red print ad for the United Kingdom where I stood smiling in the setting sun as its rays reflected off my red hair. I was booked for the United States version also, which was scheduled to shoot that Monday. This had been the only thing I had done with my life so far that seemed as if it could really finally be something. This was the dream that I had postponed for so long and was finally coming true, and now my face was ruined. I tried to explain to the doctor examining me that I had to be fixed up quickly. I was expected at a funeral in less than an hour, and I was an actress in the middle of a photo shoot who needed to keep her job. The doctor looked at me with uncertainty, excused himself, and ran from our curtained-off area. A few minutes later, a different doctor appeared, who smelled like cigarettes. Mmm, cigarettes. I thought of the delicious Nat Sherman phantoms I had in my pocketbook. Not that I could have actually put one in my bloody mouth. I would later find out that this doctor was the hospital's plastic surgeon. It was supposed to have been his day off. He had just finished a graveyard shift and was standing outside the hospital waiting for a lift to Jones Beach when the ER doctor, who did not think he had the skill to fix me, ran outside and begged him to come back in. The surgeon bent down and gently closed the gap in my face with his fingers. I say gently because I'm sure he was gentle. 
It just felt as if he was searing me with a blowtorch. I can fix this, he said, but we're going to have to put you to sleep for a little while first. No, no sleep. You don't understand. My father is dead and everyone is waiting for me and I have to give the eulogy. And I sprayed him with blood and spittle. And just when I needed him most, Adam walked in and explained everything. The surgeon then said to me, if you need to be functional, I can do this with locals. It's going to take some time to stitch everything back together, and it will hurt, but we'll get you there. I motioned for a pen and paper. Go ahead, I wrote. What could possibly hurt more than this? It took eleven needles to numb me properly, and I felt the first four. It was the worst pain I had ever endured. Imagine a swarm of a thousand bees stinging as one, first in unison and then separately overcoming you so completely that you can no longer remember feeling any different. I couldn't tell if the pain was coming from the needles, from the stitches, or from a place where tears were no longer of any use. Three hours later, I careened down a path at Trinity Cemetery in Washington Heights, flush with pain medicine and the memory of the night before my father died. It was on Tuesday, and I had called and he wasn't feeling well. My parents' air conditioner had broken and my father was uncomfortable. Adam and I had brought my parents a new air conditioner that we were planning to surprise my father with for his birthday, so I said, Daddy, drink some iced tea and hang in there. I'll see you on Saturday. He said he was going to go lie down and said good night. I remember it was a little after seven in the evening. He was dead at seven o'clock the next morning. My entire family had been waiting at the foot of the hill since nine o'clock in the morning. They had come from Washington Heights, the Bronx, upstate New York, Long Island, and Florida. And there were even two ancient creatures I didn't recognize who had come all the way from Cabarrojo, Puerto Rico. My left shoulder was in a sling. My right knee looked as if it had been replaced by a watery red softball. Amid the goth perfect, Deep purple-blue bruises on my face, a web of over fifty stitches held my mouth together. I knew upon stepping out of the taxi, yes, we had to take another car service, I knew that upon stepping out I would be overwhelmed with sympathy, compassion, and pity. But I was already beyond overwhelmed and only wanted this horrible day to be over. Let's do this, I whispered, and walked into the chapel. I started the eulogy by saying I'd never met anyone who did not like Rudolf Carlo. I ended by saying that he may not have been wealthy in most people's opinions, but he was the richest man that I knew. Everyone had to strain to hear me because I could barely open my mouth as it was practically shown shut, or I could barely my my mouth was practically sewn shut and I could barely speak louder than a whisper. My mother and brother couldn't even look at me. Everyone else cried. Afterwards, we went to a restaurant where I, of course, could eat nothing. When Adam and I finally got home, I collapsed onto the living room couch where I would spend the next three weeks. I didn't cry at the funeral. I physically couldn't. But I was devastated. Not only did I lose my father, but with the accident, I also lost my purpose. All my life, I had tried to be an artist, an art director, a copywriter, an artist again, and I had failed at all of it. Imagine a surgeon going blind or a lawyer losing his vocal cords or a teacher in a world without children. If I could no longer be an actor, I didn't know what to do. 
I tried to distract myself by reading, but to no avail. I tried daytime television, but one week of Richard Bang and Ricky Lake was enough for me to break down and finally order cable. I remember thinking that my father would have rolled over in his grave if he could see me. He didn't believe in paying to watch television. But I was desperate. How? Want a hundred cable? I want MTV. I said, I want MTV. No, I can't speak any clearer. I have wires in my mouth. Can you come tomorrow? Next Tuesday? In my frustration, I had popped ten stitches and had to have them redone. But I got my MTV. I spent the time between doctor appointments alternating between watching an endless loop of videos. Criminal, Don't Speak, and Beautiful Freak. Hugging Adam, Boris, and Kimchi, and looking in the mirror. When the stitches were finally removed, it took three days for my repressed grief to exhaust itself. I mourned and howled and then howled again for the loss of my father and the loss of my hope. The Johnny Walker people never rescheduled. And when I walked into my first casting appointment sporting my new braces and a fresh pink scar over my left lip, which, due to residual nerve damage, left me with a slightly crooked smile, I was not called back. By that agency or any other, except for that one commercial where I was supposed to be a nerd with braces. My fledgling career as a legit independent film actress, actress was over, and there was only one creative outlet left open to me, one I had been resisting for over a year because it wasn't really acting. It was performance art. Well, that's the first time this has happened in, what is it now, been in 21 episodes. I couldn't finish the story. So we'll just have to make it like a serial and we'll pick up with it next week. That's our show, kids. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. There's only five episodes left this season after this one, so if you like what you've been hearing, consider sponsoring us. Just click on the little green button at the bottom of the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and let Patreon take care of the rest. You can do it for as little as $1 per episode. That's the cost of admittance to any number of shows or open mics at Surf Reality, Collective Unconscious, or any number of Lower East Side alternative performance scene shows in 1997. So we're going to leave you with a song from the specials, which if you substitute Michelle for Rudy, is probably how my father thought of me until we finally and thankfully had our breakthrough. In memory of Rodolfo Valentino Carlo, 7-1932 to 7-1697. Every time I find a dime, Daddy, I know it's from you. See you next week with the rest of this story, everyone. Right out. Tired, right out. Better think of your future.